Welcome, everyone. You are listening to the LifePoint Christian Church Podcast. Let's get started. I'm not going to have you raise your hand if you don't know the Christmas story. Chances are we all know it. But there's a message that's inside the Christmas story that you've probably, in fact, I almost can guarantee, you've never thought about before. That it affects how you actually live your life excuse me, how you live your life today, right now. In the Christmas story, something matters to you today. We're not just talking about something that happened 2,000 years ago. So hang with me, and we're going to get to that this morning, a message that God has for you literally today that affects your life moving forward. We discover that message in Matthew's gospel. That's where we'll be, Matthew chapter 1. You can turn there in a physical Bible or on your phone. Go to the YouVersion Bible app. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Now, to set the stage for the message that God has for us, I want to look at three languages, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Some of you are saying, hey, I have a hard enough time with my own English language. I don't have time for other languages. Hang with me. I'll try to make it as quick as possible. Pull out your phones. You might want to snap pictures or jot notes. Uh, This will just be something that's kind of good information to have, and you'll be glad you have it in the future. The word Messiah, again, verse 18, this is how Jesus the Messiah came about. The the word Messiah is the Hebrew word Mashiach. Everybody say Mashiach. Mashiach. Mashiach was translated in Greek, the language at the time of, of Christ was translated in Greek, and it's the word Christos. Everybody say Christos. In English, we didn't translate the Greek word Christos, we transliterated it, which we do that sometimes with verses in the Bible or words in the Bible, Um, and literally to transliterate something means to take the word Christos and Englishify it, okay, just make it an English word, and so Christos, what did we come up with? Christ, so we use the word Christ, but what is the translation? What is the definition, definition of Messiah or Mashiach? or Christos, or Christ. Messiah, or Christ, means the anointed one. Everybody say, the anointed one. This is how the birth of Jesus, the anointed one, came about. Now, while we're on names, this is super important to the Christmas story, but it might mess with you a little bit. The name Jesus is the Latin form of the Greek word Jesus. And some of you are like, that's too many languages and I'm already done. Hang with me. Jesus is the Latin form of the Greek word Jesus. Jesus is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Yeshua. Everybody say Yeshua. Tell me if you've heard that before. Most of us have heard that. So stay with me here. Yeshua. Yeshua What we put in English in our Bibles is Joshua. Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, the Latin of the Greek, Jesus, which is the transliteration of the Hebrew word Yeshua, Yeshua, Joshua, the translation is salvation. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Jesus the Messiah in Hebrew is pronounced Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. Our salvation, the anointed one. Now, to truly understand the significance of what is happening around the Christmas narrative, you need to understand that the name Jesus 
Yeshua and Yeshua, Joshua, are the same names, the same coming from the same Hebrew word, Yeshua or Joshua. What do we know in the Old Testament about Joshua, about Yeshua? Well, Joshua, he was a warrior, right? He was a general. He was a military man who took over after Moses had died, and he's the one who led the Hebrew people into the promised land. Eventually, the Jewish people concluded from all the prophecies that God had given in the Old Testament about their coming Messiah, they had concluded that another Joshua, another Yeshua, another warrior king would come and deliver them from their oppressors. And so the Jewish people in the first century, they are looking for a a Yeshua, a Joshua. And by the way, because of that confirmation bias with certain prophecies, they really missed other prophecies that stated that the the king who was going to come was not going to be a king who was going to take on Rome. He was actually going to be a suffering servant, Isaiah tells us. But their confirmation bias didn't allow them to see that part. So here's how the story of Jesus the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, came about. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Now, prior to the first century, per the Old Testament scriptures, Mary, if she had been born prior to that first century, she would have most likely been burned alive or stoned to death for being pregnant outside of marriage. Since the Roman occupiers in the first century in Israel didn't allow the Jews to, to carry that out, they came, the Jewish people came up with alternatives for a man who found himself in a situation where the person he was pledged to be married to, if she was found to be pregnant or, or, or had done some things, uh, had been unfaithful. And so he had some options. And in the first century, here's what he could do. He could humiliate her in public helping reserve his own dignity, and number two, he could file for divorce. We'll talk about that in a minute. I want you to imagine being in Joseph's shoes. It would have been impossible for him to believe Mary's story that God got her pregnant, okay? It would have just been impossible. There's no way he would have been able to wrap his head around that. So what was he going to do? Well, standard protocol is to humiliate her in public, So it doesn't look bad on him and file for divorce. Because in that culture, engagement was actually contractual, different than today. Once you got to that point, you were in it, you you would have to literally file for divorce to get out of it. And I love this next part. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. In other words, the law says you got to do something about this. Her being pregnant outside of marriage. You need to burn her alive or stone her, but the Romans didn't allow that, so you need to disgrace her. You need to do that publicly. And yet, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace. In other words, we learn something about uh, Joseph right now. We learn that he's caught between a rock and a hard place. He's caught between law and grace. Law and grace. Have you ever been in that situation? Maybe with a child, maybe with an employee, maybe you're a teacher and one of your students, maybe with a friend. You're like, man, I need to bring down the hammer right now, the law. 
but you find yourself wanting to exercise grace. He's caught between law and grace. So he's thinking about this. He's not sure what he's going to do. And it goes on and says, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Though they weren't married yet, they were already legally bound together. So, so it required a, an actual divorce to separate from her. And he thought to himself, I'm going to do it quietly. I'm not going to go through the whole public humiliation thing. After, verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, so Joseph is having this dream and an angel shows up and says to him, verse 20, Joseph, son of David. Now that's important for the whole Christmas story that, that, that Jesus is in the line of King David, which is an important part of the story. He says, the angel says, do not be afraid, because obviously he would have been afraid. An angel's talking to him, but not only that, he's thinking about everything that's coming his way in the coming days and future. Do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, which would have been easy for the angel to say, right? The angel could say that all day long, but Joe's life is now going to be an absolute mess. Everybody in the, in, the, in the community is going to assume he's the father. His reputation is at stake. This is a small village. Everybody knows everything about everybody. Everybody is in each other's business. The angel says, but you can take her as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want you to miss the larger picture of what's going on here. Matthew is writing this gospel decades and decades after these events. And for Matthew to sit around and decide, okay, how am I going to start off my gospel? What am I going to say? What am I not going to say? For Matthew or really for anyone to manufacture or to come up with this story of a virgin birth, it actually doesn't help the storyline. It doesn't help the credibility. If anything, it hurts. Why? Because that whole virgin birth stuff, that sounds a whole lot like Greek mythology that used to happen. You see, in Greek mythology, people knew that, you know, that the Greek gods would come down and they, they would mate, they, they would get together with human females. And maybe some of you know some of Greek mythology. You might just know it in, intuitively, even if you don't know it specifically. Hercules, who was his father? Zeus, right? Helen of Troy, who was his father? Zeus. Zeus was getting around a lot and, and having all these babies. And so it's a Greek idea. So Matthew... The Messiah doesn't need to be born of a virgin. That's not helping your story. That's not going to help the credibility of the story, which is to say this. Then why did you put it in, Matthew? Well, the only reason the virgin birth made it into the Christmas narrative would be if it's true. Making up a story about a virgin birth doesn't help it be more credible. So Matthew tells us about this for one reason and one reason alone. This is how it went. This is what happens. It happened. This is the truth. It was true. An angel of the Lord appeared to Mary. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, This son has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Verse 21. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name. Drum roll, please. You're to give him the name. Jesus. Yeshua. Joshua. You are to give him the name Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. Now, Joseph is thinking as this comes to him, is this really happening to me? I mean, Mary is having a kid. 
I'm not the father, but I'm not to worry about it. I'm to give him the name of the long-awaited Yeshua, Joshua, the warrior king. Name him Jesus. Why? Because, and Joseph is thinking, you don't have to tell me why we didn't name him this. Because I already know. For hundreds and hundreds of years, we have been oppressed. We've been a vassal state. The Persians came in, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. I know exactly why the Messiah is finally going to be born into the world. Why? The angel continues. Because he will save his people. And Joseph's thinking to himself, of course he's going to save us. That's what Joshua Yeshua does. Joshua led the people out of Canaan or into the land of Canaan and defeated the enemies. Of course he's going to save us. We already know that. The angel continues because he'll save his people from there. And Joshua's, Joseph's going, I know what he's saving us from. He's saving us from our oppressors, saving us from our, the invaders, saving us from Roman occupation. He will save his people from their what? From their sins. All right, time out. All right, angel, you're having this conversation with me. And he's going to save us from our sins. Uh, What are you talking about? That's not really a felt need of ours. We need delivering. We need saving. But that's not what we need to be saved from. Clearly, Mr. Angel, you're not familiar with our future descendant, Abraham Maslow, and his whole hierarchy of needs. Mr. Angel, let me tell you what he's going to write centuries later. Here's how it works. And maybe if you've ever done psychology, you're familiar with this chart. Our basic needs, a bare level. You want to know what our needs are? Our basic needs are physiological. We need to be able to eat. We need to be able to have water. We need to be able to have the things necessary for survival. After that, then next in line is we need safety. We need to be kept from harm to have security, i.e. we need to be saved from Rome. We're not safe. That's a need of ours. Once we're safe, we need to have this sense of love and belonging, of community. That's a huge need of ours. Once we have that, then we kind of get into that whole self-esteem thing. And that's based on respect and accomplishments and, and people recognizing in that in us. And that's important for us. That's a need of ours. And at the top of this ladder of needs is self-actualization or self-fulfillment needs. It's the desire... to to be able to accomplish, to become the most that I can be. And notice, Mr. Angel, as I look at that list, you know what's not on that list? Anybody want to guess? Sin. Mr. Angel, you're missing it. We don't need to be saved. We need to be saved from some things, certainly, especially Rome. But sin doesn't even make the list. Besides, Mr. Angel... We've got a very sophisticated save-us-from-our-sins system that God has already put in place. It's right over there at the temple. I can go there anytime and get saved from my sins. We don't need another system to save us from our sins. What we need is a Savior with a sword. What we need is a Yeshua. What we need is a Joshua, a warrior king who will save us from Rome. That, Mr. Angel, is what we need. Thankfully, Joseph didn't respond that way. Instead, verse 24, 
when Joseph woke up after he had this encounter with the angel, he knew what he had to do. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home to be his wife. Now, my guess is this. My guess is you're not moved much when you hear that God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. That's my guess. Why? Because just like the people in the first century, we hear that and we think, oh yeah, that's, that's just not really a felt need of mine. I mean, I, I need food, water, shelter, community, belonging, self-esteem. Those are my needs. You, you know, uh, yesterday, uh, a weird day, or not a weird day, but I took some time to actually work on my taxes for next year. I know, goofy, some of you are like, why are you doing that? Long story. So I'm working on it, and I'm going through, like, my utilities and all that. And as I'm doing that, um, uh, I didn't realize Heather had snapped this picture. Um, I'm intent on, on doing that. So uh, I'm, I'm working on my taxes. And so she, I didn't know this until this morning, they, family talks late when I already go to bed. And so she sent this picture to the family, and this morning I saw it, and she said this, the irony of dad figuring out that we paid 38% more in home utilities this year than last year while dressed like this to stay warm enough at home. <laughs> yeah, you heard it right. Doing the, this, this year, we paid $2,500 more in utilities than the previous year. You know what my needs are? To be saved from the inflation. To be saved from, that's just utilities. That's not everything else. And so I'm sitting there, when I listen, Jesus saved me from my sins, I'm like, yawn. Because those are my needs. Those are my felt needs right now in this day and age. You see, the reason that most of us, I suspect, that we just don't fall on our knees and get wrapped up emotionally when we hear that God sent Jesus to save us from our sins is because that's not what we hear. You and I don't hear God sent Jesus to save us from our sins. What you and I hear is we're to give him the name Jesus because he will forgive us of our sins. Not he will save us from our sins, he will forgive us of our sins. Far too many Christians have reduced Christmas to simply forgiveness. We reduce Christmas to forgiveness. In fact, for some of us, our entire religious experience has basically been, well, nobody's perfect, but God forgives. Nobody's perfect, but God forgives. I mess up, and God forgives me. Now let me get back to my life and figuring out how to reduce the cost. I mean, I only can bundle up so much before, you know, I can only reduce my heat so low. i got to get back to my real life. But the message of Christmas and the message to Joseph in the dream and the message in the Gospels, it's just so much, so much bigger than simply forgiveness. If you have reduced Christmas to merely forgiveness, forgiveness is a big part of it, but if you've reduced it to that, you have missed one of the primary messages of Christmas. Because Jesus came to deliver us not just from the penalty of sin or the consequences of sin. In fact, the consequences, we still have to live those out. Jesus came to deliver us from the power of sin. Did you hear what I just said? He came to deliver us from the power of sin. Jesus came in the spirit of Yeshua, Joshua, as a warrior. 
to free you and me from the kingdom of, the dominion of, the power of, slavery to, the nation, not of Rome, but of sin. You and I have been promised in Jesus deliverance from the power of sin in our lives. That's a big part of the Christmas message that I don't think we've grabbed a hold of. And Jesus alluded to this throughout his earthly ministry. I'll give you one example, John chapter 8. A lot of you are probably real familiar with the story. Jesus is at the temple uh, some religious, with his disciples. Some religious leaders come up to the temple, and they bring to him a woman who has been caught in the very act of adultery. My guess is it was all set up. It was a test. She's the only one there. The dude's not there, so they didn't really care about the actual situation. They want to test Jesus. So here she is, and she's standing on the temple, on the temple mount. Maybe this is the first time she's been there in a long time, perhaps if ever. She's yards away from where the priests are sacrificing animals for the forgiveness of sins. She's yards away from the, from the holy of holies, where, the, where, where God's presence is, where the book of the law is. It's the last place she wants to be. She's been thrown down, and these religious leaders look at Jesus and say, this woman, she has been caught in the very act of adultery, and the law says to stone her. And with a little smirk on their face, they say, so what do you say, Jesus? They're trying to trap Jesus. But here's a little thing I've discovered by reading the Gospels. Jesus is brilliant. Have you figured that out? He's brilliant. He's God. He calls their bluff. It was a bluff, bluff, by the way. They weren't going to stone her because, number one, you don't stone people on the temple, and number two, the Romans didn't even allow it. So he calls their bluff. He says, fine, why don't you take her down to the valley of Gehenna? Go ahead and stone her. Go for it. One caveat. Those of you who have not committed sin... You be the first ones to throw the stone. Normally, if Jesus had a mic, he'd drop it and walk away. <laughs> They're all speechless. They're stunned. They, don't, they, they, they didn't expect that. They, don't, they can't respond to that. One by one, they slowly leave. Jesus kneels down next to the woman, and he says two things. One that's famous, and one that's not so famous. He says, where are your accusers? They, they, she says, well, they left. And then he says to her, and I suspect with a little bit of a smile on his face, where are your accusers who have condemned you? He says they left. And he looks at her and says, well, I don't condemn you either. I don't condemn you either. In other words, you don't need to go and sacrifice a lamb over there to the priest for the forgiveness of your sins because you're in the presence of the Lamb of God right now. In other words, Jesus was saying, I forgive you of your sins, which was Jesus essentially saying in that moment he was God because only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus said the not-so-famous part. He said, neither do I condemn you, John chapter 8, verse 11, go now and leave your life of sin. Now, I want you to put yourself in this situation. Imagine if Jesus came to you right now. In fact, let's do this, make it a little even more freaky. Imagine one of the sins you struggle with. I know you may not want to go there right now, but just imagine it. And you're in the midst of that sin, whatever it is, and Jesus comes right in that moment and shows up. Again, I know you don't even want to think about this, but he shows up physically in front of you. And he says, I don't condemn you for what you're doing right now. Now I want you to go and leave your life of sin. 
I suspect you're thinking, is that even possible? I mean, is that even something I can do, that I can actually leave my life of sin, that I can leave this nation of sin, that I can leave this captivity to sin, that I can actually say no to sin? Is that even possible? Jesus said in, in what is one of my life verses, and kind of a, it is a life verse also of life point, Jesus said in John 10.10 10, that the enemy, our devil, the devil, the adversary, our adversary, it says, the enemy, the thief, he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you may have life, life to the full, life to the fullest, abundant life, real and better life than you could ever imagine. See, that sounds a whole lot bigger than just forgiveness. Much broader. He says, I've come to do more than forgive you of your sin. I've come to set you free from your sin. You are cor- they are, you're correct in naming me Yeshua, Joshua, because I've come to deliver you from something, not simply to forgive you of something. I've come to set you free from something. Later on, the Apostle Paul put this whole idea into theological terms around the purpose of Jesus coming, and it's found in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said this, in light of all this, he said, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In other words, don't allow sin to be your king. Don't allow sin to be your master so that you obey its evil desires. In other words, don't allow yourself to be under the authority of sin. What's Paul saying to you and I right there? He's saying to you and I, you have a choice. You have a choice. Why did Jesus come? To deliver us from our sin, not just to forgive us of our sin, that's part of it, but to deliver us from our sin. Paul goes on and he says, Romans chapter 6, verse 13, do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather, which means you have an option, which means there is another way, which means if your entire Christian experience has been sin, get forgiven, sin, get forgiven, sin, get forgiven, then perhaps you've missed one of the primary messages of Christmas, one of the big parts of the meaning of Christmas. He says, but rather, you have a choice, but rather don't offer any part of yourself to sin, but rather offer yourselves not to sin, but to God as those who have been brought from death to life. When Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, he's not talking just about being forgiven of our sin. He's talking about being set free from our sin. To be set free. When Heather and I were in college, we uh, went to this church for a season that was founded by a ex-con who was this tatted-out, Harley-Davidson-riding, look criminal all over. Now, today, you say tattoos, it doesn't mean much, everybody's got tattoos. Back then, the only people who had tattoos are the people who rode motorcycles or were in prison. And so he was both. And so he founded this church, and so he founded this church, and, and you, we went to this church, and Heather and I, man, we loved to go there, and it was so outside of our family reference, because we showed up, and there's hundreds of motorcycles lined up. People coming on, you know, so you walk in, you're like, oh my goodness, is this really church? Because it was a little scary, uh, especially us and them. 
and we get there, and I remember it was this tent, and, and, um, and it was open on the sides. It's Southern California, so it's, you know, it's sunny and all that. And we sat on these white-painted wood benches because it was just packed. The name of the church was called Set Free Church. And I thought, how appropriate that here's a, a, an ex-con, biker, gang person who lives a, a, a life that understood they weren't just forgiven of their sins. They were set free from the bondage of sin. And all those people who gathered who probably, if a hundred of them showed up in most churches, people wouldn't know what to do back then. Maybe a little more now, hopefully. They wouldn't know what to do. But here these individuals are. They understood they've been forgiven, but they've been set free from sin. Paul's telling you and I, in Jesus, we've been set free. And then Paul says this, and I love this. Verse 14, for sin shall no longer be your master. And notice Paul doesn't say the devil shall no longer be your master. It says sin shall no longer be your master if you're in Christ. And then at this end of this incredible teaching, he gives and summarizes it with a statement that you and I, some of us, have actually memorized. He says, verse 23, for the wages, what we earn, what we deserve, what we have coming for our sin is death. In other words, our sin always kills something. Have you figured that out? Your sin always kills something. I suspect that some of us or somebody we know has had their marriage killed by sin. Some of us have had our finances killed by our sin, our lack of self-control or our greed or something else. Some of us have seen the relationship maybe between our best friend or a friend or a coworker or a child of ours killed by either our sin or their sin. Some of us have seen an addiction kill a relationship. Some of us have seen sin kill the way we view ourselves. We look in the mirror and we don't like what we see. Why? Because sin has caused us to have a wrong view of ourselves. Wherever there is sin, something always dies. Because the wages of sin, what we get from our sin is that something always dies. But the gift of Christmas, Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We think that just means that we go to heaven when we die. That's what we reduce this verse to. But church, it's so much, it's so much bigger than that. Because the gift that we receive when you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ is a gift that we receive right now. It's not just the thing that happens when we physically die. You receive the gift of eternal life, which is now a life free from the power and of bondage to sin. A life that's been set free from our sin and the sin's control in our life. That was the gift to you and I of Christmas. Not just the forgiveness of our sin. That's really ultimately where you head to, you know, the resurrection. Not just the forgiveness of our sins but freedom from the power of sin through Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is Christianity. This is the good news. This is the message of Christmas, that sin shall not be our master. And here's the greatest news of all. It's not the law of God, but it's the spirit of God in us that allows this to happen, which means if you're a Christian, you can be set free of sin anytime you want to. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. 
You can be set free anytime you want. You can say no to sin anytime you want. You're set free. And if you've been wrapped up in this endless cycle of trying, failing, ask forgiveness, man, you have missed it. The message of Christmas, and I want you to hear this, sin is not your master. Sin is not your master. Lust is not your master. Lack of self-control is not your master. Alcohol, prescription drugs, your anger, your jealousy, your bad habit, your addiction, none of that is your master if you're in Christ. When you became a Christian, you were placed into Christ. Jesus came into this world on Christmas Day to do so much more than forgive you of your sins. That's like the easy part. He came to set you free from sin. And so just like Jesus told the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, he tells you and I, sin is not your master. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. What if, what if, what if, what if you just woke up every single day, maybe even got on down on your knees, and you had a prayer before God, and you said, Heavenly Father, Almighty God, I come before you now, and I give you my hands. I give you my eyes. I give you my mouth. I give you my ears. I give you my mind. I give you my heart. Sin will not be my master. I have been set free from that. So I give my body as instruments not to sin, but as instruments of righteousness for your goodness and for your glory. Can somebody say amen? When that gets into your heart and your head, you will live set free. That's God's desire for you. It's why Jesus came, not just to forgive us, but to set us free from our sins. Who needs Christmas? Anyone who needs to be saved from their sin. I know that's me. I suspect that's you. You're to give him the name Jesus. He will save the people from their sins. Let's pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. You can learn more about us by visiting us online at lifepoint.org. If you are ever in the Sacramento area, we would love to see you in person. Events and service times can be found on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you join us for our next episode.